Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. Curious if I could see a show of hands um, if you're Catholic. Now you don't you don't have to be Catholic to to come to a talk, you know, sponsored by the Thomistic Institute. But I'm I'm curious. You'll see why here in a second. Okay. So um, and now see a show of hands if you're Catholic and you've ever heard uh, predestination uh, brought up or preached on in a homily. <laughs> so one, two, three. Okay. That's, a, that's above average, I think. And then, uh, and how many of you have heard of predestination if you're, if you're Catholic or, or think of predestination as, as, a, as a Catholic thing of you? Okay, all right. A, a, little, a few more there, right. Um, I'm, I'm an adult convert to Catholicism and, and I, um, I don't think I've ever heard of pre- predestination brought up in a homily. I'm, maybe, but I'm not sure that I, I have. Um, but it is a Catholic thing, as, as we'll see here, uh, and, um, and that's uh, the topic and, uh, for tonight, and especially uh, the relationship between predestination uh, and, and free will. So why don't we just dive, dive in here? Um, so just uh, some, some points uh, to begin with. Um, we'll be talking some about, about the relationship between predestination and, and salvation, and for our purposes, uh, salvation, we'll just say, is, is the beatific vision, seeing God face-to-face, eternal union with God that would completely satisfy every desire of the heart. Um, uh, they, maybe there's more to it than that, per, perhaps, but uh, that, that will work for, for our purposes, um, salvation. And I want to make an assumption uh, that, that salvation or, or the beatific vision is, is due to no creature by nature, in other words, God doesn't owe the beatific vision to any of us simply in virtue of creating us as human beings. And just a, ba- a background uh, assumption that I'll have here. Um, well, what is predestination? What do I, I mean by that? Um, I'm going to give it the, the following uh, definition. Um, predestination is, uh, is the claim that a created person attain salvation if and only if God chooses that the person attain salvation. A created person attains salvation if and only if God chooses that the person attain salvation. And there's a, there's a, I think a key important implication of that doctrine. In a way you might uh, say it's, it's really the substance uh, of the doctrine of predestination, which is that, um, not just the possibility of attaining salvation and not just the help of attaining salvation, uh, but, God, but our actually attaining salvation is God's gift, okay? 
So I think it, it would be very common for, for, for Catholics and for all Christians to think that uh, it, it's God's gift that we have the possibility of being saved, it's God, and God gives us help to attain salvation. But the idea that are actually attaining it, actually attaining salvation, the attainment of it is God's gift, uh, I think follows from predestination as we've defined it here, because uh, predestination is saying that we attain salvation if and only if God chooses uh, that we attain it, if and only if God gives us salvation. Okay? And I, I, I'm interested in, in metaphysical questions around predestination, but I think it's, it's uh, also really important to know that, that predestination, you know, if this tr is true, it has really important implications for our spiritual life. Um, it calls for a certain kind of, of fervent prayer, right? If, sal if salvation, if our salvation, our attaining salvation is up to God, is in God's hands, then naturally it's something that we'll want to pray for very fervently. We'll want to pray very much for our own salvation and, and for the salvation of our, our loved ones. Uh, it would be uh, one of the most important things, maybe the central thing that we would, uh, we would uh, want to pray for when we're, when we're at least in, in petitionary prayer. Um, I think it's an implication of predestination. Uh, th there's a certain kind of, of spirit of hope there uh, that we place our hope in, in God as one who uh, hasn't just made it possible that we attain salvation and offers us some help, but the one who can actually uh, make it happen. God can, can make uh, it happen that we attain salvation. And, and so we have uh, reason to, to place uh, uh, our hope and confidence in him, especially if we're praying. Uh, that we attain it and that our loved ones attain it. And I think it, it, it also implies something about the nature of what, what heaven must be like uh, for those who attain salvation, the, the incredible, uh, grateful place that must be. Um, uh, I guess on any, any, on any way you look at it, it's going to be a grateful place, even if, if God just makes it possible or gives us help to attain salvation. But if our attaining salvation or actually realizing it is God's gift, uh, what gratitude uh, uh, the company of heaven must have uh, uh, to God for, for being there. Um, this idea that, that, that predestination calls for a certain kind of fervent prayer uh, for salvation of us and our loved ones, uh, it's interesting that, that after a couple of chapters in the book of Romans where St. Paul seems to be laying out a, a, a doctrine of predestination, uh, chapters uh, 8 and 9, the first thing he does in the first verse of chapter 10 uh, is, is offer a, a, a kind of prayer, if you will, a brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his fellow Israelites, is that they may be saved, right? And if that fits very well with the idea that, uh, that salvation is God's gift, which is something that I think uh, St. Paul teaches. Okay, so what, what support do we have for predestination for this, this claim um, that we've now defined? Um, well, there's, there's various places in scripture that you can look for it. And I, I've included one here that, that you can read. You maybe already have, I won't, I won't read it, but, um, and, and some other places in scripture where you find predestination, uh, talked about and, and, uh, and taught, um, you can find predestination, uh, in the doctrine of, of the church, certainly. So, um, a couple of passages here from the Council of Trent, an ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, uh, defining dogma and doctrine. This particular council is coming after sort of the wake of the Protestant Reformation. And you can, if you just look at the, the first passage there, um, 
No one, uh, so long as he lives in this mortal condition, ought to be so presumptuous about the hidden mystery of predestination as to determine with certainty that he is definitely among the number of the predestined. For without special uh, revelation, it is impossible to know whom God has chosen for himself. Now, the, the point of this, of this passage from the Council of Trent is, is really to warn against the presumption of, of, of thinking that we, we know too easily whether or not we're among the predestined, whether we're among the chosen. But obviously, the whole discussion uh, assumes right, the church's acceptance of, of predestination, that, that, uh, that it's a thing, right? And you get the, the same sort of thing in the, the following uh, uh, passage from the Council of Trent. Uh, the same uh, is to be said of the gift of perseverance. Here talking about the, the, the gift of perseverance about which it is written, he who endures to the end will be saved. This gift can be had only from him who has the power to uphold him, who stands that he may stand with perseverance and who can lift him who falls. Uh, the gift of perseverance seems to be a, a gift here that if, you, if you've been given it, right, then you will persevere in the faith to the end and, and be saved, right? So it, it, it captures the idea uh, that uh, our attaining salvation is in God's hands here uh, through the gift of, of perseverance. So we find it in scripture, support for predestination. We find it in the teaching of the church. Uh, we find it, and here is what I, I found as i looking into this and thinking about it, uh, especially striking, we find it all over the place in the prayer of the church, which is a, a great guide to what the church actually believes. Um, so, and we find it right in, in the central prayer of the church, in the Eucharistic prayer, the central prayer of, of the mass, uh, we find uh, this idea of predestination. So um, from Eucharistic prayer one, uh, therefore, Lord, we pray graciously, Accept this oblation of our service, that of your whole family, order our days in your peace, and command that we be delivered from eternal damnation and counted among the flock of those you have chosen. God can command that we be delivered from eternal damnation and counted among the flock of those uh, he has chosen. Um, uh, uh, from, from Eucharistic prayer four, uh, so there are various different versions of, of the Eucharistic prayer that are used in the Mass, but all of these are sort of the central prayer uh, of the Mass, uh, where you, you find, I think, predestination is, is I'm using that term right there. Um, so to all of us, your children, grant a merciful Father that we may enter into a heavenly inheritance with the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, and with your apostles and saints in your kingdom. Uh, we, we find it in other places in the Mass. So like the, the, uh, the prayer after communion here is just one example of them. Look with kindness upon your people, O Lord, and grant, we pray, that those you were pleased to renew by eternal mysteries may attain in their flesh the incorruptible glory of the resurrection through Christ our Lord. And then the last passage, I won't read, read it, uh, uh, but from the Liturgy of Hours, um, uh, asking similar sorts of things. Now, now, what's interesting about these prayers is that they're, they're asking not that God make our attaining, attaining salvation possible, uh, not uh, that he give us help, right? But that he grant us uh, 
seems that the attainment of salvation, that grant that we uh, be among the company of, of heaven. Um, and uh, that sort of prayer doesn't make any sense unless whether we attain salvation is in God's hands. Unless it's not just in God's hands that, that it's possible that we attain salvation, uh, that he could help us to attain salvation, but that we actually realize salvation, that that be in his hands, okay? And so I think you find in the prayer of the church support uh, for this, this idea, okay? But, but that's not, uh, of course, the, the whole story about uh, what's needed for, for salvation, um, uh, certainly on the Catholic view, because we also uh, have this idea, uh, Catholics and certainly many other uh, Christians as, as well, uh, of, of responsibility, our own responsibility in the matter. Um, this idea that whether a person attains salvation depends on what that person does. Well, what sorts of things? Well, it might be uh, keeping the commandments. It might be doing good works. It might be repenting for our sins. It might be uh, believing right? All different sorts of things that we do uh, uh, and that are needed uh, for uh, attaining salvation. And, and there's lots of scriptural support, uh, not just for predestination, but for this idea of, of our responsibility in the matter. Um, so just to read, uh, you know, the f- first passage here from uh, the gospel of, of Matthew, uh, then someone came to him, Jesus, and said, teacher, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Um, So something that we need to do in order to attain salvation, not what God chooses, but what we need to do. Um, And the rest of the passages here, I won't read through them all, but they they point to different sorts of things that uh, we need to do uh, in order uh, to attain salvation. Um, Church, church doctrine, uh, just as it supports predestination, supports uh, this idea of our responsibility in the matter, that we're responsible for doing certain things and that salvation would be, will be rewarded to us uh, if we do them. So this, another passage from the uh, Council of Trent. If anyone says that a justified man, however perfect he may be, is not bound to observe the commandments of God and of the church, but is bound only to believe as if the gospel were merely an absolute promise of eternal life without the condition that the commandments be observed, let him be anathema. Well, there there are two sorts of things you can see the the, the church affirming that we need to do uh, as a condition of being saved. Uh, Believe. And then what it's really correcting is the idea that that's the only thing that we need to do. We also need to observe the, the commandments. But again, in, in either case, right, there's something we've got to do um, um, uh, in order to be, to be saved, to attain salvation. All right. Well, this, I don't know if you've, uh, no, if you've noticed, but there's a kind of puzzle uh, that comes from the juxtaposition of predestination on the one hand and this idea of our responsibility in the matter on the other. And the problem here at the beginning of part four can be put this way in terms of a, of a question. 
how can it be God's choice whether we attain salvation? How can it be God's choice whether we attain salvation, what predestination affirms, if whether we attain salvation depends on what we do, which is what responsibility affirms? How can it be up to us whether we attain salvation if whether we attain salvation is up to God? I think it's got to be one or the other, right? Uh, how could it be both? That's a, that a, seems like a, a, a puzzle. Um, there's a solution to it that I, I think is the, the, the solution that, that the church wants to put forward. Um, but it's certainly a, a puzzle, at least at the outset. Um, to, to talk a little bit about uh, the solution, um, let's call those things that we need to do in order to attain salvation. Let's just, we, it's helpful just to have a, a word that covers them all. Let's just call them merits. Right? It's a traditional word that is sometimes used for at least some of it. Okay. Merit, those things that we, we need to do or that if we do, right, they will fulfill conditions uh, needed for our attaining salvation. Okay. We could also call it accepting the offer of salvation, right? Doing things that, that, uh, constitute accepting the offer of salvation. All right. Here's the solution, right? How could, how could it be up to God, God's choice that we attain salvation, but also be up to us, something we're responsible for? Here, I think, is the, the solution of, of the church and of the tradition. It's that our merits, right, those things we need to do to attain salvation, our accepting the offer of salvation is itself from God is God's gift, is something God brings about in us. If that's right, then, then our merits, our accepting the offer of salvation, is at once something God chooses for us because he, he gives us those merits, he brings those merits about in us, but also something we do because they're, they're things that, that we, actions that we do of various sort. Okay. So it can be up to us and God. We can be responsible. There are certain things we need to do and be responsible for, but it's also up to God because God gives us those very actions, right, that, that merit salvation. They're God's gifts. I think there's, there's, uh, there's lots of support for this in the tradition, beginning with Scripture, right? So we can look uh, at, at various passages here. For example, from Ephesians, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, and good works, which God made ready beforehand that we may walk in them. Good work, God, our good works are, are in a way made by God that we might uh, walk in them, in those good works. Uh, from Philippians, uh, it is God who of his good pleasure works in you both the will and the performance when it comes to our, our good works. God working in us when we when we perform meritorious works of the sort that we need to perform in order uh, to attain salvation. Uh, from, from Ezekiel, I, God, will cause you to walk in my commandments and keep my judgments and to do them. So we find scriptural support for this idea that our good works are God's gifts, something that God brings about in us. The prayer of the church supports this idea. So here's, a, here's another Eucharistic prayer, Eucharistic prayer two. Uh, have mercy on us all, we pray, that with the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, with the Blessed Apostles, and all the saints who have pleased you throughout the ages, 
we may merit, we may merit to be co-heirs to eternal life and may praise and glorify you through your son, Jesus Christ. So here the prayer is not uh, j- just sort of directly grant that we may be saved, attain salvation, but grant that we may merit to be saved. In other words, grant, give us that we do those things, right, that, uh, that we need to do in order to attain salvation. There's this uh, a passage from St. Augustine that I'll, I'll skip over, but it captures this idea uh, that our, our merits are God's gifts very, very well. And I encourage you to read it uh, uh, when you have time. Um, uh, it's supported in church doctrine. So this is from uh, the Second Council of Orange, which is a, a council in 529 or, or early uh, on, fairly early on in, in the church, uh, that is responding to the Pelagians and semi-Pelagian heresy. Uh, if you're not sure what that is, don't worry about it. But uh, here, listen to the sorts of things that are, are taught in this, uh, this council. Um, so it, it is a divine gift, both when we think rightly and when we restrain our feet from falsity and injustice. For as often as we do good, God operates in us and with us that we may work. When we do good, God is working in us to do that good. Another passage from the same uh, council, grace is not preceded by any merit. A reward is due to good works if they are performed, but grace, which is not due, precedes that they may be done. So we need that grace first, the grace which is not merited by any, any good works we do. But we need that grace first before we can do the good works that then would merit the attainment of salvation. And, and finally, uh, skipping down a few passages, this is um, uh, another passage from the Council of Trent, the, the uh, second passage from the bottom of this, uh, this section of the handout. If anyone says that the good works of the justified man are the gifts of God in such a way that they are not also the good merits of the justified man himself, or that by the good works he performs through the grace of God and the merits of Jesus Christ, the justified man does not truly merit an increase of grace, eternal life, and provided he desires in, uh, in a state of grace, the attainment of this eternal life, let him be anathema. Okay, so this passage seems to be going out of its way, you know, to emphasize uh, on the one hand, that our good works are God's gifts given in grace, but on the other hand, though they be God's gift, they are something that we do and that actually merit a reward, right? A heavenly reward if we do them. All right. So how can, whether we attain salvation be up to God, God's choice, whether or not we attain salvation and also something that we're responsible for by performing certain kinds of works. Well, the idea is those works themselves that we need to perform to receive the heavenly reward are themselves God's gifts that God brings about in us. That's a, that's a solution, I, th- I think, to reconciling predestination on the one hand and our responsibility in the matter on the, on the other. Okay, But um, this raises another another question or another um, problem that we need to think through. 
and that's uh, how all this is consistent with, with human freedom. How what our good works can be God's gifts brought about in us by God and also be free in the way that they would need to be for us to be responsible for them. And so we'll turn to that. Uh, are you with me so far? Okay. Um, now this, it starts to get a little more technical as we move through. Um, but I think uh, if you follow along in the handout, I think you can, you can, you can, uh, you can stick with it and then we can talk about it in, in the Q and A as we need to. All right. So I, I take it that, that there are two, two theses that follow from the foregoing reconciliation of predestination and responsibility that we've just looked at, okay? Um, a first thesis and a second thesis, okay, T1 and T2. So the, the, the first thesis, T1, is that I have the ability to do what's needed, the ability to do what's needed to attain salvation only if God gives me the needed grace. Only if God gives me the grace do I have the ability to do what's needed to attain salvation. And the second thesis, T2, my doing what's needed to attain salvation is God's gift brought about by God. I take it that this is just something that, that's been established in the previous part of the, of the paper, okay? But then those two theses arguably come into some tension with, with certain requirements for us to act freely, okay? So what, you might ask, what, what characteristics must belong to an action if it's a free action, if we consider it to be free? And there are various things one might, might say, but here's, here's some things that, that a lot of people, I think, would want to say uh, that an action needs in order to be free. Um, one is you, you've got to have the ability to perform the action. You've got to have the ability to perform an action A in order for in order to perform it freely, okay? That seems pretty clear. Many have thought that it, at least in a lot of cases for an action to be free uh, requires that the person performing that action has the ability to do otherwise than they do. That, that arguably needs some nuancing in light of various con other considerations, but, but I think I think it's widely held by a lot of people that at least, uh, at least many of our free actions, if we're going to have freedom at all, there's going to have to at least be some of those actions where we act in such a way where we have the ability to do otherwise than we did. And you might think uh, another requirement on, on free action is uh, that the act uh, be ultimately up to, to me, right? Um, in my, under my control, right? If it's not up to me, um, and under my control, whether I perform some action A, it's, it's hard to see why we would call that a free action, the way we ordinarily use the word uh, free. So there, there, are these, there are requirements here for, we might say, uh, I think for free action, okay? Um, and I think along with them come some requirements for moral responsibility, for an action being such that we could be held blameworthy for not performing the action 
And, and, what, and what's needed for us to be praiseworthy, let's say, if it's a good action, if we perform it, or blameworthy if we perform it. Um, so you might think that I'm not morally responsible or blameworthy for failing to perform A if I was not free to perform it. How could I be, how could I be morally responsible, right, for, for failing to do something that I wasn't free to do? And you might think R5, I am not morally responsible for or deserving of reward for performing A if I do not freely perform it. So suppose I perform A. Uh, if I don't do it A freely, right, then it's hard to see how I'm morally responsible for that performance. So in a way, the, 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 these requirements for moral responsibility, R4 and R5, they don't add a whole lot to uh, these requirements are one through three about free will. They're just in a way saying that that moral responsibility and free will go hand in hand, right? If we don't have, if we don't ha satisfy the conditions for for free will, we're not going to satisfy the conditions for moral responsibility, and therefore we're not going to satisfy the conditions to be, deserve praise or blame for anything that we do or fail to do. That's the idea, right? So you take you take away freedom out of the picture, and it looks like you're going to take away. Uh, the, the sense in saying that we've merited some sort of reward or some sort of blame for what we've done or what we failed to do. Okay. Well, if you take those theses, right, that seem to follow from our reconciliation of predestination and responsibility, those, those two theses, and you look at them in light of these requirements for freedom and responsibility, it raises a couple of, of worries or potential problems that I think an account of, of predestination needs to say something about. So the first problem is that it, it looks like um, I won't be free to do what's needed to attain salvation unless God gives me the grace to do so, right? Because T1 says, I, I don't have the ability to, do, to, to merit. I don't have the ability to do what's needed to attain salvation unless God has given me the grace. So he hasn't given me the grace. I can't perform that act. I don't have the ability to perform that act, so I, I, I can't perform it freely. So how could I be blamed for not performing it? Right? That's the, the, the worry. The second, the second problem is suppose I do do uh, a meritorious act. Call it, call it A, right? Suppose I do it, um, and as Thesis 2 says, right, God is bringing about my meritorious act. He's bringing about my doing it. My doing the meritorious act is God's gift. Well, then it, it might seem like if God brings that act about, it might seem like I couldn't have done otherwise than, than that act. And it might seem like that act is, is ultimately up to God, not ultimately up to me. And if that's right, then the act doesn't satisfy those conditions for free will, which suggests that I do need the ability to do otherwise. And the act does need to be ultimately up to me, right? So the concern is, is that we've got the, this picture of God's relationship to our, our meritorious acts. God has to give us the grace to have the ability to do what we need to do to attain salvation. And God actually brings about our meritorious acts and that these these claims about God's role in that take away uh, our, our freedom, right, 
uh, with respect to the acts in question. Now, this is a this seems like a problem just on a, on the philosophical level, but it's also a, a, a problem if if it really did take away freedom, it would be a problem. Um, from the standpoint of conflicting with the teaching of the church, which affirms that we are free in these matters, right? Um, the, the church very much wants to affirm that we're free uh, with respect to uh, uh, acts that merit salvation. So uh, if you look here at, a, at another passage from the, the Council of Trent, if anyone says that the free will of man moved and awakened by God in no way cooperates by an assent to the awakening call, and that man cannot refuse his assent if he wishes, but that like a lifeless object, he does nothing at all and is merely passive, let him be anathema. Right? So grace is, is, is working here, certainly, uh, but, but it, it can't be working in a way that, that precludes the freedom of our action, the church is teaching. And then this last passage here uh, from uh, the catechism uh, of the Catholic Church, when God establishes his eternal plan of predestination, he includes in it each person's free response to his grace. So freedom has to be preserved in this picture is the idea, but it's not easy to see how it's going to be preserved, right, in light of the, the, the thesis one and thesis two that we saw. above. Okay. Well, let's try to solve these, these problems. I think they can be solved. Maybe there's more than one way they can be solved, but I'm going to suggest my, my preferred way. I think resolving the first problem is, 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 is fairly easy, actually, um, provided that we're willing to say that, that God gives all people uh, grace prior to or antecedent to the occasions when they have an, uh, the opportunity to perform meritorious acts. If God gives all people the grace needed, right, to do those acts that they need to do to pertain, attain salvation, then everybody is going to have the ability to perform meritorious acts. So, so it won't be the case that there's anyone who simply... Uh, is unable to do anything that they need to do in order to attain salvation because God will make it possible by giving grace prior to, to their uh, performing the acts that gives them that ability, okay? Um, if, that, if that's right, then uh, everybody's got the ability to perform the acts and, and so uh, at least meets the requirements for being uh, held accountable if they don't perform them. I think the, the, the second problem is, is, more, uh, is more challenging, is, is more difficult uh, to deal with, but I think it, we can deal with it, okay? And, uh, but I think to, to see what's, what's needed to, to deal with it, I think we need to talk a little bit more about, um, about free will and the kind of situation that would seem to rule out or, or preclude free will, preclude an act's being free, okay? What, where I'm at, going to try to go with this is say, like, okay, here's a situation where if this situation holds, then it looks like freedom is taken away. But, and then what I want to argue 
is that, well, on some ways of thinking about God's action, this situation does hold, and it looks like freedom is taken away. But there's other ways of thinking about God's action where the situation doesn't hold, and so freedom isn't taken away. So I, I think we should think about God's action that way, and, that, and, and it will solve the, the problem, okay? So an, a, an agent's performing an act appears to be, or freely performing an act, an agent's freely performing an act appears to be undermined or precluded if there are factors that are prior to the agent's act that are outside the agent's control and from which the agent's act simply follows. There are factors prior to the agent's act. Those factors are outside the agent's control and the agent's act simply follows from those factors. You can think of it as there's a kind of, of scheme here, right? Uh, you, you can think about if you, if you let, and I don't want this to look too much like a math class, you know, but uh, if, you, it, you know, if you let um, just A represent my act, if you let F represent any sort of factor, um, prior factor, uh, could be a, a prior events, it could be uh, things going on in God's will, it could be anything, any prior factor, if you let the X arrow Y stand for the idea that Y simply follows from X, uh, it's not possible uh, that X occur without Y's occurring. <coughs> and then if you let OC just stand for outside control, whatever that OC attaches to the idea that that thing is outside of, of my control, all right? Well, if there's, if there's some factor outside my control, right, and if my act simply follows from that factor and it's outside my control that, that my act simply follows from that factor, then it looks like I think that, that my act is outside my control. And if my act is outside my control, is it free? I would think not. Yeah, I would think not. So we need an account of what's involved in God's bringing about our acts, our meritorious acts, where God's doing that doesn't bring about any factor that is prior to my act and outside my control. Do you see that? If, if we want to preserve the idea that God brings about our meritorious acts in a way that they're still free, if, if we accept this scheme here about what sort of situation would preclude free to rule it out, then what that means is we need to, when we think about God's action, God's bringing about our meritorious acts, we've got to think about it in such a way that it doesn't introduce any factor that is prior to my act and outside my control from which my act simply follows, okay? Now, there are, there are popular ways of thinking about God's action and bringing about some effect that I think um, don't escape this, this, uh, this scheme that would preclude free will, okay? So I have a, a couple of, of uh, examples of those on, on the, the next page. Um, I, I call one the, the prior divine decree model. It's, it's handy sometimes just to give names to things. So one, the prior divine decree model, one, the prior divine act model, 
Um, in the prior divine decree model, there is like this, there's a choice of God to bring about some effect. And that, that choice is prior to the, to the effect, uh, and the effect simply follows from it. In the prior divine act model, it thinks of God, when God brings about some effect, E, it thinks of that as involving a divine action that is prior to the effect E, and, and the effect E simply follows from, from that prior divine action. And in, in both of these cases, it looks like the implication would be the same. Because there is a factor, if, if we substitute for E, my act, any, any act that I perform, right? If this is what's involved in God's causing my act, there's going to be a factor that's introduced that is prior to my act, outside my control, from which my act simply follows. It's either going to either the divine decree or the choice or the God's act of causing the act itself. And either, either way, I think on these popular models, I, I won't end up having the ability to do otherwise. And what I do won't uh, be um, ultimately up to me or ultimately in my control. I want to suggest a way of, of thinking about divine agency, though, that I, I, I think does escape uh, um, the, the worry. And I'm going to, um, I, I, I'm giving this, the name extrinsic model of divine agency um, because it thinks about God's act of causing some effectee or his choosing to bring about some effectee is something that is actually uh, extrinsic to God. Uh, if we let here, I, as you can probably see, we're letting uh, the triangle because we're Trinitarian uh, represent God here. Um, if you look at the, the popular conceptions of God's agency, the prior divine decree model and the prior divine act model, and you see where uh, the, these decree, this decree is located or where God's act of causing E is located, they're located sort of in, in or they're kind of attached directly into the triangle, right, into God, right? Um, whereas on the extrinsic model, the God's act of bringing something about or even his choice of bringing about something is actually extrinsic to, to God. Um, I think this is going to have, this is going to have implications that, that help us solve our problem. But I, I want to just say uh, in passing that the, the model here of, of thinking about divine agency is not, it's not ad, ad hoc. It's not uh, something ginned up uh, for the sole purposes of, of solving this problem. Rather, I think it's a, it's, it's a model of, of divine agency that arguably we need to hold anyway if we want to preserve uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity. Uh, some of you may have heard of the doctrine of divine simplicity. Some of you may, may not have. Um, but it, it's, it's a, a traditional uh, component of the classical conception of God. It's, it's part of the doctrine of God in the, in the Catholic uh, Church. It certainly would have been embraced by, uh, by someone like St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, by other uh, doctors of the church like St. Augustine and St. Anselm and so forth. And, my, and the point is, is that it, when you, and I can't go into a lot of detail to explain how, but I'll just say that it seems to me, in fact, the case that if you want ultimately to make sense of divine simplicity and think about God's acts of bringing about contingent creatures of various sorts, 
uh, you need something like the extrinsic model. And so I'm em employing a, a way of thinking about God's action here that is, I think, um, useful to solve our problem, but is needed for other reasons too, okay? Um, and so it's not brought in merely to solve this problem. So on, the, on this extrinsic model, God, what you ask, might ask, what is God's causal act or, or choice of bringing about some effect E? Um, and on this view, God's causal act of choice just consists in the effect E plus the, the dependence relation, the causal dependence relation on God. Now, if that's right, If what God's act of bringing about the, the effect consists in is the effect and its relation to dependence on God, then God's act of bringing about that effect is actually not some, a factor that's prior to the effect. I think, well, how can that be, right? God, if God is the cause of the effect, doesn't God have to be prior to the effect that he causes? at least causally prior, forget about whether we're not necessarily talking about temporal priority, but at least causally prior? And the answer is, well, yes, God has to be causally prior. God is prior to his effects. It, but it doesn't follow uh, from that that God's bringing about the effect is, is causally prior. The idea here is inspired by uh, some things that, that St. Thomas says uh, when he's talking about creation, God's act of creating, which is sort of, Paradigmatically, his, his act of bringing about effects. Uh, what is creation consist in, he says. And in, in a number of places, he says, it, well, it consists in the effect uh, with its relation of dependence on God, right? Creation is actually God's effect quad dependent on God or with its relation of dependence on God. And that's what this, uh, this uh, model of divine agency is, is saying. But it, it, it follows from that picture that since God's act of, of, of creating or bringing about an effect, since it is, it includes that effect with its relation of dependence, it's, God is prior, but the, the act itself is not prior. God's act of creating the effect or bringing about the effect is not prior to the effect. And I think uh, this has... This has some really important implications where the effect in question is, is some act that we perform, like a meritorious act. I think on this model, um, if God brings about my act, I could have done otherwise given the prior conditions. Why is that? Because on this model, for God to bring about an effect, for God to bring about my act, doesn't introduce any prior factor, any prior condition to my act that, that wouldn't be there were he not bringing about the act. Would God be there were he not bringing about my act? God would be, but his, his act of causing my act wouldn't be because his act of causing my act actually is only there insofar as my act is, is there, right? Uh, if you look down at this little chart at the bottom of the page on page 11, um, it sort of, it, it lists in the left column the various sorts of things, that, the various items that are involved on this model 
in God's bringing about uh, an act of mine, an act A. So there, God, is, God is there, obviously, right? My act is there, obviously, if God's bringing about my act. There's, there's God's act of causing my act is there. There's God's choosing or decreeing my act, it's there. And there's this causal dependence relation between my act and, and God. And if you, if you ask of each of these things, is the, thing in, is the item in question prior to my act? And is it something from which my act simply follows? You would need X's in, in both of those boxes in order to have a factor that is both prior to my act and something from which my act simply follows. But on this account, you, you don't have uh, X's in both of those boxes in any of those cases. So God is prior to my act, but my act doesn't follow, simply follow from, from God. In other words, to be God is not to bring about my act. God might exist without my act. So my act doesn't simply follow from, from God. My act uh, is not prior to my act, obviously, and none of these other items are too on, on the extrinsic model. As I said, God's act of causing my act a, uh, is not prior and neither is God's decreeing, neither is the causal dependence relationship. Okay, so I wanna, I'd like to summarize here and then, because I think we're getting close to, to our time, right? Maybe we're past close to our time, yeah. All right. Um, so the, the paper, uh, the, the, the discussion I know uh, sort of got increasingly technical. <laughs> um, if, if what you take away from it is just the picture of the relationship between um, our attaining salvation and, and God and our responsibility for it and the idea that, that our, our merits, what we need to do to attain salvation are God's gifts, uh, that, that would be great right? if, you can, if you take away that, that picture, I think, because I think it's the picture of, of the, the church and, uh, and, and the tradition. Um, and hopefully you get, get something of an idea of what's needed to, to solve these problems connected with free will. In my view, it has to do with a particular conception of, of God's agency. So let me just talk through a, a summary of, of the solution here, and then we'll, we'll go to Q and A. So um, so I'm proposing that, that God gives uh, antecedent gr grace universally that enables uh, everyone to have the ability, right, to do what's needed to attain salvation. All people then have the ability necessary for the genuine freedom to perform A and to be blameworthy if they don't. And I think this point solves the first, the first problem that we were looking at. Th this this antecedent grace, sometimes called sufficient grace, that makes it possible, gives us the ability to, to do what's needed. God can give this grace, and it, it still leaves open the possibility that a person not perform the act. And so the, this antecedent grace does not introduce a prior factor outside my control from which my act uh, simply follows.
And then by adopting the, the extrinsic model of divine agency, we have an account of divine agency on which God can cause my act A without introducing a prior factor from which A simply follows and without removing the person's ability to have done otherwise than A. And I think this solves the second problem. Showing how A can be a gift brought about by God without taking away freedom. So on this model, it turns out to be ultimately up to, to God whether I perform the acts needed to perform salvation, but actually ultimately up to me as well. It's ultimately up to both of us. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And that's the key uh, idea of the solution. I think I'll just leave it there. There's some more things I could say even in summary, but I think it's best to stop and then we can yeah, take questions and answers. Okay. Yes. What was your view on predestination before your conversion to the Catholic faith? I don't know that I had much of a of a of a view of one, because um, I, I was not, I wasn't coming, I wasn't sort of well catechized or in, entrenched in in a different sort of theological tradition before becoming Catholic. I wasn't either. Yeah. So I didn't have particular views, you know. I probably, it, I probably was not aware of the extent to which it's, it's a, you know, a part of the Catholic um, view, you know. I, I think I, when I first started hearing about predestination, I thought, oh, no, I don't want that. Yeah, that can't be right, you know. And I, I immediately had worries about freedom and so forth. And then I'm reading all, <laughs> all these uh, uh, doctors of the church who have super strong accounts of predestination, and then I'm reading a little bit more and you know, saying, eh, it's right there in scripture. Can't really deny that. And then I'm, you know, uh, and then I'm starting to see it all, all over the prayer of the church, right? Not always with big blinking lights saying, ah, predestination, but it's there, right? The, this, this, the, the central idea, yeah, so. Um, yes, sir. A, a semantic quibble on page seven. Yes. If I'm walking along a cliff, I get, I get pushed off. Yes. Uh, it would be, uh, I wouldn't say, I, well, there I am acting to punish my debt. I would say I was acted upon. So when OCX doesn't hold, mm. I wouldn't call it an act. I was, yeah. in, you mean in a case where you're just, you're falling off a cliff because someone. I was yeah. acted upon. I yeah. Act. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Uh, and I, that example, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but a little deeper, early on there's a statement that we have a mystery of predestination. Yeah. So it's very interesting that we arrive at uh, a place where uh, I caused the act and God caused the act. Yeah. It looks like we're kind of back at a mystery again yeah. to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're different. There are different ways in which it might be a mystery. Like, like there's, there's a one level in which that anything can cause anything else is mysterious. Like, how does that even ever ha happen, right? Might be a kind of mystery. And, but, but most of us just take it for granted that it happens. Then there might be a mystery because we think that there's a kind of attention, or maybe even worry that there's a contradiction between two different things we want to hold. And in this case, I want to say, I don't think there's a contradiction if you adopt the right account of divine agency. 
Um, so, so if that was what was meant by mystery, I would, I would want to deny that part of the mystery, but, but I'm sh- there are other ways in which it, it probably is right. Certainly we, how God brings about what he does. Right? We don't, we don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your. Yeah. You know, I, I yeah. just, I'm, I'm willing to accept mystery. Yeah. Right. Like, like yeah. why is there time? Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess within time, I'm not going to know, but uh, I, I, I am too. I'm willing to accept mystery as well. Uh, what I don't want is, is, a, is contradiction. Yeah. Uh, now I'm willing to accept that I can't always figure out, you know, how to solve something that seems contradictory. You know, I may not, you know, I don't think I'm smart enough to figure out everything, you know, un, un, uh, unravel and dissolve every apparent contradiction that I might come across in things that I want to hold. So I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. To up to a point, although in the end, I, I don't want to say that, you know, any of the, the doctrines of the faith that I hold have a contradiction, but we, we don't, you know, but that's not, need not be what mystery means either. Yeah, maybe we've arrived at a less disturbing mystery. Yeah. By the end of the, yeah. which is worthwhile. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thanks. Yes. Uh, thank you for this talk. Um, but uh, so on your model, my, um, big observations that you don't really talk about the um, you talk about act and will and, and events and what will happen, but you don't talk about knowledge. What, what about God's knowledge and all knowledge? I think that that is a major aspect of predestination that um, that the Calvinist um, well Protestant um, perspective on, on this issue is that uh, do we know? How do we know? Or when we should know? Or uh, what if God knows we don't know? What does that mean for uh-huh. our freedom? Yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of questions here relating to, to God's knowledge and to our knowledge that I think are, are related. Um, so are you thinking, are you, are you concerned more about our knowledge of, of, of what, well, where we stand uh, or, or God's the, knowledge? The contradiction here we'll go is with, obviously that God must know. And yeah. we don't necessarily know, although some church might claim they know. Yeah. And it's yeah. become their thing. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if God knows and we don't know, so how is that like God's overarching knowledge? Yeah. Um, how's that relates to our kind of um, yeah. freedom? Uh, is it, are, is freedom, is our freedom just like a so one, one que- question you might be asking is whether God's knowledge of our destiny, if you will, right? Whether God's knowledge uh, compromises our freedom. Is that, you know, and I, and I think we want to say no, right? Uh, I, my own way of answering why that is no is would be actually related to this because I would tie God's knowledge of uh, what's, what's going on with creatures to his knowledge of his own actions and bringing them about. And so if his knowledge of, of his own actions and bringing them about don't introduce the sort of factors that rule out freedom, then neither does his knowledge. Okay. That's what, I, you know, but, th- but there are lots of, of the debates about the nature of God's knowledge. 
uh, in some ways of, of thinking about God's knowledge might, might uh, rule out uh, freedom, or you might worry that it does. Well, my answer is obviously God knows. Like God, knows. God knows, sure, yeah. And I think all parties want to say that, yeah. And I think going to what you, one thing you said earlier, I think, I think you know, the, the Catholic Church wants to say God knows, and we don't know. We don't have, can't have certainty unless God has specially revealed it to, to uh, an individual in some sort of private, special revelation. We can't have certainty uh, that we will be saved. It's something we, we have to hope and pray for and, and work for. Um, okay, yeah. Um, I was just less about predestination or just human freedom yeah. um, in, in some ways related to knowledge, right? Because so Aquinas talks about, uh, I mean, the libertarian free will stuff really maybe it comes down to Aquinas when he talks about Alexio, but I mean, when he talks about free will as the freedom of judgment. And so famously he says, you know, there's, there's no sinning in heaven. No. Um, like we can't leave, right? We can't leave that. We make it in the heaven, we can't leave. It's impossible. Um, so I was just wondering if you could comment on like how does that compromise human freedom? Yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Uh yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't think so. Um uh so and maybe you're thinking here is well, haven't you just said uh, you know, it seems like you're saying a condition of freedom is ability to do otherwise, but in heaven, right, we can't sin. We don't have the, so we can only, we're locked into the vision of God, right? Are we not free in that state? I think I would want to say that we're, we're, we're free in that state, but it'd be, I think, a longer story about how to, you know, disentangle these various conceptions of freedom and their importance, right? Um, yeah. What a, you probably, I'm taking you would want to affirm freedom in that state yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, for those of us who might be more familiar with Calvinist predestination, yeah. uh, how does Catholic predestination differ? Yeah. Um, and could you also repeat the questions back to me? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I forgot to do that. You, um, yeah. How does, how does Catholic predestination differ from Calvinist predestination? Um, you know, you might get different Calvinist accounts from different Calvinists. So, um, but on, I think some Calvinist views affirm uh, what is sometimes called double predestination. So there's predestination not only to heaven and glory, but there's also predestination to hell. And, and the Catholic position has rejected that. You, you see a little bit, I mean, this is later on in the handout. I knew, I knew there was no way I was going to covered this, but it might have been come up in Q&A, and it, and it did. Um, if you look at uh, various part seven essential elements of a Catholic account of predestination, the last one on there is that it avoids double predestination. Um, um, so here's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willful turning away from God is necessary and persistent until the end. And then you can see also a something from the Council of Trent. So that would be a difference from at least some Calvinistic views, okay? Um, but I, my understanding is, is that there are Calvinists who reject double predestination. So uh, there may be some disagreement within Calvinism about that. Um, the, um, I, I think Calvinist pictures often... Um, uh, adopt something like the prior divine decree model that I 
suge suggest here, uh, which seems to me to run into issues with free will. I, but I also think that there's, there are Catholic views that adopt, that adopt something that seems like that. Now, they're not double predestinarian, but they adopt something like the prior divine decree model. And I think they, they still want to affirm freedom. It's harder for me to see how they can, they can affirm it uh, with at least the, the sort of conditions for freedom that, that seem right to me. But, um, but they might have a little bit different take on what's needed for an act to be free. Okay. All right. Hope, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, about, I, I guess what the, the teaching on sufficient grace and how expensive it is, um, is maybe two different possibilities. Is it possible for somebody to decisively reject salvation prior to the end? Or does the doctrine of sufficiency of grace mean that at each point where it seems like people are being given a choice, right? Yeah. The, the bad guy kills a person on Monday and then he it's yeah. Another choice on Tuesday, another choice on Wednesday. Yeah. Does does the doctrine require that, or I don't think the grace only come occasionally? I th I think I don't think it requires that. Yeah. yeah. I am. Um, I I think, and I wasn't trying to claim that even. Oh, although no, it's no. just, you know, yeah. Um, only the the idea that everybody has the ability. Um, at least, you know, at, at some point in their life, they have the ability to do things that put them on that path to, to salvation. Uh, and that uh, they might, if they do not cooperate with that grace, um, uh, then I don't think that God is obliged to continue giving it. So it might be that they can kind of decisively, you know, now I hope that he does. I think we pray that he does. He does and gives and and there's reason to hope that he gives us lots of chances and so forth. But I don't know. I don't think it's required uh, of this view or or doctrinally. I don't think. I wouldn't think. You you seem to be nodding in agreement. But yeah, if you yeah I'm correct me. If, uh, that seems, yeah. That seems right. Okay. But, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a it's a yeah, it's a possibility. Like I, I don't think we know. You know, some of this stuff is not. Uh, I don't think we're committed dogmatically, you know, to, to, um, there's some, some options here and, and we, we may, we may not know, right? Exactly. Right. Um, uh, we, here's another thought just on this. I mean, the, the, I mean, you know, can we, we, we can merit, I think God's giving uh, sufficient grace to others, to, to others, such that they have the ability to uh, then perform meritorious acts, maybe even after they've rejected it beforehand. We pray for those people, right? And God looks at our prayers and hears our prayers and, and, and bestows grace on those who are undeserving. I mean, we're all undeserving, but, but uh, and that's one reason why, you know, uh, the implications of all this is, is you know, a fervent habit of, of prayer for ourselves and others. So, okay. All right. Thanks very much. You all have been a patient uh, audience. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, 
please consider showing your support at www.themysticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.